All right. So um, this is episode four now of Coffee and Conversations. Today we have John Espy in here and uh, actually a unique coffee. We got something from Melbourne, Australia, uh, a place called Sensory Lab, fairly well-known um, cafe, coffee roasting uh, that is uh, going on over there. Um, John actually brought this back because he was recently on a trip to Melbourne, which is uh, where one of his offices is. Um, and we'll get into that here in a little bit, but uh, this is one of their seasonal roasts. It's a, a Kenyan coffee, um, just brewed it up, so it's super, super hot, but um, I've had it before, very delicious, and uh, grateful that John would be able to bring some back because um, coffee's a, you know, a very established cultural thing over in Australia. And it's, Kind of on my list of uh, places to go and experience so absolutely i was happy to bring it back and you yeah. pointed out a couple of great coffee shops yeah. for me to attend so i appreciate that um <laughs> that john actually um showed me this app called bean genius no not bean genius bean hunter. bean hunter uh <laughs> a place it's like a just a, a hunter for um for where to find coffee and um, i've had a few customers few Australian customers as well uh, come in because they, they found um, the coffee shop <laughs> listing on, on Bean Hunter, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. So um, anyway, uh, John Espy, uh, right now, he is the CEO and co-founder of Level, which is a tech firm. Uh, they started in Charlotte, mm -hmm. but now have offices in six U.S. cities and uh, how many other countries? Uh, we have offices in uh, two offices in Australia, yeah. in Melbourne and Sydney, and then an office in Singapore as well. Uh, and then we're doing projects in Europe and in Latin America as well, although we don't have an official presence uh, in, in, on those continents. Cool. Um, let's kind of rewind a little bit because um, uh, I guess let's start from, you know, where did you grow up? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was uh, born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area, in Northern Virginia, actually. And I lived there for about uh, 28 years. I went to undergrad at George Mason University and spent basically my entire, uh, the first 28 years of my life there in D.C. Nice. Um, and then you, you attended Duke for grad school. Did that, that happen after your 28th year in D.C. or was that <laughs> before? So, so I moved down here for a firm a startup that I joined that was expanding and I came down here to uh, lead a project for them and, and I just fell in love with Charlotte and okay. about after about 15 months of traveling back and forth I talked the wife into into moving down here and we opened an office uh, nice. for that company um, what was the uh, what was the first startup you got involved with or what was your first entrepreneurial venture so you know, I growing up in, 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 in high school, my first job, I worked for a family, um, three Italian brothers who uh, had their own uh, gas stations and, their, and a chain of restaurants that they had started. Um, not, not, the, not your typical thought of an entrepreneur in the way that we might think of them as in tech company or Silicon Valley, but certainly a very entrepreneurial upbringing and seeing how these guys ran their, their small shop was pretty cool. And then a series of other jobs, I always worked for smaller, smaller proprietors. Um, and so I never, I've never worked for a big corporate company except for a couple of years after Red Hat acquired a company that, that I was the COO of. Um, but the first real tech company that I got involved with at a very early stage was called Amentra. Okay. And that was the firm that I moved to, uh, to Charlotte for. 
Um, and to answer your question, once I'd moved to Charlotte about four years later, my GMAT scores were expiring and I didn't want to retake them. So I decided it was time and I decided to go to Duke because I was either going to go to Duke or North Carolina. I didn't really care. I flipped the coin and applied to Duke and when they accepted me, I said, this is where I'm going. There you so, go. Um, but, but I worked for a mentor. I joined as an employee number nine. Uh, it was a small firm. Um, I was working for a very good firm in, in a similar space, but I met the, the founders of, uh, and, and leadership team at Amentra and was just blown away. Um, they, to this day, I mean, one of my partners at Level was actually the CEO and founder okay. of Amentra, and we've invested in or, or worked on probably three or four other projects since Amentra, including, including Level. Um, and it, it was just a fantastic experience. I, I watched that company grow from nine people um, huddled up in Richmond to, uh, to about 200 people by 2008, and we sold the company to, to Red Hat. We had five offices. Um, and then Red Hat was a great experience, even though it's a bit, it was a big company, it was a fast-growing company. They were a $400 million annual revenue company with this, just a really cool culture for a company of that size. Uh, they're now, I think, uh, pushing $5 billion, uh, or they're thinking about the $5 billion annual revenue mark. Yeah. So, so they were growing explosively, and I spent two years with, with Amentra, and, or with Red Hat after the Amentra acquisition. And that's how my ties to Australia and some of the business that we're doing in, in Europe and in Latin America as well, a lot of it came from my experience at Red Hat because they've got a true global footprint. Now for, um, for everybody listening or watching, um, take me through just a little bit about like what Amentra started as and, mm -hmm. and kind of what you were doing. Cause it, it would seem like now you're very much in the administrative side of things, mm -hmm. like the bigger picture stuff. Were you ever sure. on the, the nuts and bolts absolutely. really deep in the technical side? Of yeah, it? absolutely. So I, I joined Amentra when I was just three, three years out of undergrad. So I was, I was pretty young. Um, I knew how to sell. Um, I, I'd worked in a couple of retail jobs and so I knew how to sell, but I wasn't, selling or managing teams at first. I just came in and was writing code. I had a client in uh, Waynesboro, Virginia that was a, uh, they, they were the um, incumbent local exchange carrier uh, named Intellos and went and did a project where I was writing .NET code for an application that they wanted to build to kind of modernize the systems in their stores to make it easier to onboard people. Um, and, and, and I worked on two or three other projects in a very hands-on had a boss that was leading the projects that I was on um, and, and, and again learned a lot and they they saw pretty quickly that hey this guy can do the project work they moved me started moving me into more of a project management role the first project I did down here in Charlotte was at Family Dollar still very hands-on but I was at that point leading a team of four people and started selling work to the Belks and the Lowe's of the world and basically I didn't give them any choice. I said I'm opening an office in Charlotte and I hired a sales guy and I and, and started hiring a staff and then I went and got a short term lease at a Regis office and nice. within within probably a year and a half we, we had a thirty person office and, and we, we were driving a significant uh, chunk of, of revenue. So I, I kind of transitioned very quickly over probably a two or three year period. I had moved into a spot where I was leading the commercial services for the company and ultimately I became the COO of okay. that company. So that brings up uh, something that I wanted to touch on with you because it's, it's not always the case that somebody who's a very good technician mm -hmm. then becomes a very effective and good leader as sure. well. Um, a lot of times people are great as employees uh, and that oftentimes will will prompt their superiors to kind of promote them into more of a management role. Sure. 
but that might not be where they're successful. So, um, you know, what do you think makes you uh, effective as a leader? Because, you know, being able to just demand that you're opening an office and then grow to 30 employees um, in a relatively short time span would... would well, I think a couple of things there, Freddie. I think, first of all, for me, the environment that I came up in, and, and I was very fortunate to have mentors, and I was very deliberate about seeking mentors out, yeah. and so that that really helped a lot. You know, I didn't really... I, I, I knew I had all of the raw tools to do the selling and to lead teams and to inspire and motivate people, but I didn't really know how to put it together. But I had mentors. But I think the other thing is, and, and I, I had a colleague in, in a job before I went to a mentor who said this to, to the group of us. We were in a management training session, and he said, you know, you have to treat this the same way you treat technology. It's a skill that you have to develop. You've got to build the soft skills. They may, for some people, they come naturally, but for others, you've got to keep working at it. And I'm a big believer that you can turn anybody into a leader. Um, for me, it comes when I'm looking at the folks that I want to turn in and grow into the next generation of leaders, I look for do they have the determination, do they have an open mind, are they coachable, mm -hmm. and, um, and do they have the intellectual curiosity to keep asking why mm -hmm. and to really figure out the underlying meaning of things and, and why we do them. And, and, uh, and, and when I find those, I, I try to pay it forward and give them the same kind of mentoring that was given to me because there's very few people can make the transition from deep technologists to sales person or leader without some hand-holding. There are some very unique talents. I've worked with some people who have been able to make that transition themselves. I'm not one of them. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting because uh, I've seen people that have, have flourished in, in very, you know, the mechanical uh, yeah. roles, but not so much in leadership roles. They're, they're um, very different skill sets. Right. You know, your, your attention to detail and a maniacal obsession with perfection mm -hmm. serve you very well in an engineering role. Yeah, uh, they don't serve you very well in a management role. Right, uh, you, 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 it becomes what we call micromanagement, and that's where I see most people who make the transition and do it poorly, or when they stumble, it's because they think that they need to manage every single detail and, yeah. and know every detail that's going on. Delegation becomes yeah. key, like trusting the rest of your yeah. team. Absolutely. Um, let's go back to a mentor. You talked mm -hmm. about. You know, helping grow and develop that company to where Red Hat came in and purchased it. Mm -hmm. um, how is that different from where you're at with Level now, where you, um, you know, your goals are to continue growing? I don't know if, if you've had other investors or companies that have expressed interest in purchasing or merging or whatnot. In our industry, you always get that, and and we probably field a serious call every quarter okay. from some really big name mm -hmm. companies. Um, our goal is to continue growing and to to build something big and global and, and with with name rec you know household name recognition, and, and we're frankly not not there. But but I like where we are. We're further along in some ways than we were uh, than we were at Amentra. We've got some capabilities that we didn't have at Amentra. We're probably better at selling. Um, we've caught up with Amentra's revenue run rate. Um, it really in about a four-year period what it took us eight years to do at Amentra and a lot of it is because we've got a lot more experience we've got the network that, that we had before and a lot of connections um, but but it certainly has moved faster than what we did at Amentra and we would like to try to to grow the company and, and maintain um, the control of the company that, that the three partners in it have right now 
Um, that being said, there's always someone that comes along with an offer that, that you can't refuse and you can never hmm. rule that out. So you have the conversations. We do, we've taken about $5 million of investment capital through the years. Um, a lot of it was because there were strategic folks who we wanted to get on board. So we've got uh, a gentleman who started a very powerful M&A advisory bank uh, that, that's international and operates in 22 countries. He expressed interest. We didn't need his money, but we wanted his brain power. We wanted right. him to be able to advise us, and we've invested with him in other ventures as okay. well. So we brought him on board. Uh, we brought on board um, a couple of business people who have run and sold companies, or run and raised a lot of money, uh, and uh, or started companies of their own, and we've, we've brought them on. Other times, we've known that we, we did need to raise money because we wanted to go after the Australia thing. Yeah. When, you, when you open an office in Washington, D.C., it's one set of challenges. When you open up in Australia, 16 time zones ahead, some some parts of the year, yeah. and a 15-hour flight from L.A., uh, it's it's a very different ball game, and you need a little bit more capital to right. do that kind of thing. Right. Um, I just forgot what I was going to say. The um, briefly, what what uh, in like two or three sentences, what does Level do, and what do they what do you provide for your clients? Sure. So. At, at the highest level, we do what's called digital transformation. So if you think about um, companies that are out there in industries, whether it be banking or advanced manufacturing or restaurants or uh, logistics or you, know, you name it, any of the big industries that are out there, they all see what Uber did to the taxi companies and what they're doing to the rental car companies. They see what Airbnb has done to, to the hospitality industry. And, and, and every executive out there is thinking about how do I defend against these companies, these digital native companies. So we really started Level to focus on two different types of clients. And the reason we picked Level as the name is we level the playing field for both types of clients. If you're a small technology firm, you, you probably are very good at putting a small team together that can build things very quickly, but your big co company clients want you to scale. They want you to have compliance and governance. Um, if you're a, a big company, you probably struggle with developing products quickly. Mm. You know, Facebook famously pushes code out five, six, seven, ten times per day and breaks things in, in, in a controlled environment and is able to drive innovation very quickly. So when you're a bank trying to compete with a Facebook who's allowing you to move money through Facebook Messenger, mm. how do you respond? And, and a big part of what we do is we work with very large companies to become more nimble and to create a digital strategy and a digital implementation. I know you wanted it brief, but... Well, no, I mean, that's, it's interesting because we've seen in the last handful of years, a lot of these big industries been disrupted at mm -hmm. like a structural level. Yep. You know, you talk about cab, taxi cabs and Uber and, you know, hospitality and Airbnb. It's like mm -hmm. you don't... Um, it's 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 now become people's first instinct to open up their phone yep. and find uh, you know somebody that's renting out a bedroom in their apartment rather than getting on and you know booking a hotel room. Absolutely. Um, and you know what other industries is that going to hit next? Yep. And and, and you see it. And, and one I like to give one interesting counterexample where an industry punched back. Um, and. And the example I'm thinking of is in banking, you know, PayPal famously made it a lot easier to move money around. Um, but there's a more recent threat to the banks called Venmo, mm -hmm. which everybody's aware of that's under the age of 30, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very, very cool solution, very easy to move money. Um, 
very elegant solution. And uh, the banks actually got together um, and there was a network that was developed by, between Bank of America and Wells Fargo for sending money without knowing account details, which is essentially what Venmo does. Banks got smart, they spun it out into, a, it was called the Clear Exchange Network, they spun it out into a product that they rebranded as Zelle, built a standalone app, built an SDK, they distribute it to these different banks who then integrated into their mobile Right, mobile I was going to say it's nested in, like, yep. like I pull up the Wells Fargo thing yep. and I can send money with Zelle, where it yep. used to be like, they all had their exclusive platforms, exactly. like Wells Fargo SurePay or something yep. like that, where you could send to other Wells Fargo people. And, and if you've used Zelle and you compare it to the Venmo experience, it's not as good. It's not, there's, you know, it's, it, but it's an answer. It's a pun, they're punching back and you need, and right. that's what industries need to do. And a lot of what we're advising these big, our bigger clients on is, don't try to compete head to head with a digital native. They do things differently. They do them in a way that you can't do. You have to leverage your advantages. And Zelle is a great example. You've got tens of millions of users who already have your mobile, your mobile banking app. If you just turn it on one day as a feature, you right. automatically, and they actually processed, I think double the number of payments of Venmo last quarter. Oh, okay. It's really amazing. And that's interesting you say that because um, that's something that these established industries already have mm -hmm. over startups is that um, they've already got the customer base and the yep. users. Um, startups aren't going to, like Venmo, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Venmo isn't going to allow people to open checking accounts and um, start investing money, uh, whereas banks already handle that and mm -hmm. they can roll that same that same uh, functionality into their experience, I think that would be exactly advantageous for everyone. Exactly. Um, and and there's other interesting things to think about when you know when you think about industries being disrupted, even within Uber. Think about the insurance problem or opportunity that Uber mm -hmm. creates. And mm -hmm. we've met with large insurance companies in San Francisco who have invented new ways of selling insurance because. When is this a personal car versus when is this a car for hire? Right. It, the lines are not as black and white as they are in a traditional cab sense. Um, the number one source of new bank accounts in America for the last three years, I believe, has been Uber. Really? Because the drivers have to open a bank account sure. to move the money into. Interesting. Yeah, it's a. Uh, we we know somebody who works for. Um, for a company that insures a bunch of, they're not even allowed to call them Uber drivers because they're technically not employees of sure. Uber. They're like Uber affiliates or okay. something like that. And they have to be very careful with that distinction because if they say Uber driver, that would imply some sort of classification that that, um, that Uber's trying to avoid. Absolutely. Um, the, they just had a, a judgment against them in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. Where Uber was deemed to be a cab company, not, not just a software platform. Sure. Um, which, the cab unions are very strong in London. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and I'm sure Uber was not happy about that. I don't necessarily foresee that happening here, though. I no, you've, I think you've seen a little bit of pushback in a couple of cities, but Uber and Lyft increasingly are such su such widely deployed things and such a part of our culture today right. that it's very hard to push back on these things without looking silly as, yeah. as a government. I, I like what Uber's doing now is they have, like, like if somebody can drive their car and use it as an Uber, they can also drive their car and use it to deliver food. So you got Uber sure. Eats. You can you can Uber like pizza for or whatever. Sure. You can, um, you can, I just last week because my car was uh, undrivable, I got milk from the grocery store delivered to the coffee shop because I I, I needed milk and that sure. was uh, that was something um, that 
it was just it's kind of mind blowing that I can I can push some buttons on a phone and 20 minutes later yeah milk shows up to the door and you don't even pull your credit card out you don't fumble for cash uber is a payment app fundamentally right oh, right and it, 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 you run into problems with that because it's kind of uh like like you got me turned on to apple pay uh apple pay is dangerous because it's kind of fun and so when we go somewhere that accepts apple pay i'm like oh don't worry i got it yeah, yeah. and it's 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 easy it's fast it's secure and it just it makes sense yeah, absolutely Absolutely. And, and there's other interesting ramifications in, in the Uber question, when you, especially when you start to think about when we have driverless or autonomous cars, um, I can't you know, what happens to parking lots? What happens, do you, do you really need to sell 5 million cars a year as a car industry? Does everybody need to own a car? Um, what happens with when, when drinking and driving stops be causing all these accidents and organ donors? There's just the list goes on and on of right. the cascading effects if, of these technologies. Yeah, this driverless car thing, I it can't happen soon enough. Like just the you know DUIs and mm -hmm. drunk driving accidents and Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Road rage. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you you've already seen a decrease in DUIs. Uh, my my mom is actually an attorney, and mm -hmm. she um, one of her complaints of the last few years. She works in family law, so she handles divorces and property disputes, child custody stuff like that. Um, one of her complaints the last few years is all these dedicated like DUI lawyers or DWI lawyers mm -hmm. are uh, they're not getting enough work, so they've started taking family law cases and they're inexperienced uh, and not very good and it's it's just a different set of Is that an Uber factor or mm -hmm. that's she, she says that because people just Uber now they don't you know they don't get DUIs. Yep. And uh, all these lawyers are just starting to take family <laughs> law cases because they still need to, you know, pay sure. the bills. Sure. And uh, No te technology causes in, in, incredible oh, incredible it's change. And and in the companies that I get involved with, with all of them, I, I I always feel like there's something out there that needs to needs to be changed and can be improved. And I'm a big believer that the the world's toughest problems will all be solved by more technology. Yeah. Now, what do you what do you say to the people that are scared of technology? And and because there is a bit of a dark side to it, we've uh, mm -hmm. just this week I think the um, the DSM for. Mm -hmm. uh, mental health or abnormal psychology added um, like video gaming to their list of uh, addictive behaviors sure. um, and so like that's a diagnosable disease now Absolutely. Um, uh, and I think social media addiction was added last year um, what like what do you say to the people who are pushing back against this or, or are afraid of technology so just just to build on the point that you made because I fully agree with you um, one of my favorite books of all time, uh, nonfiction, is a book called Hooked by a gentleman named Nuri All who teaches, um, teaches user experience and entrepreneurship at Stanford University and it's just a fascinating book, Hooked. He talks about the science behind how you get a user hooked on right. an app and there is a true science to it and it is you're relying on dopamine receptors and it gets down to the physiology of, of, of how, and, and these are how apps like Instagram and Facebook are being built, and you you do tell an ethical line, you know the, the the influence on our elections, for instance, and fake news and the polarization of society, building these echo two completely different echo chambers that have no overlap on Facebook yeah. or Twitter. It's it's you know it, it, what I would say to folks is every time you introduce technology, there are there are challenges um, like this, and people use technology for 
for bad reasons. The Nazi regime, for instance, leveraged technology very heavily that was designed for good purposes. It can be used for bad. Um, I think that government has to adapt and figure out how to regulate these things better. Um, and I think we as a society have to ask ourselves where the boundaries are. And I think you see it. I think what, what Snowden, when, when he unleashed the treasure trove of NSA data and exposed really the extent to which technologies were being arguably misused by the federal government, I, I think people are starting to ask those questions. I think as painful as all of the data breaches have been, um, it, every time one of those happens and we talk about it and we, we hopefully we move the ball forward with what we deem as acceptable in these things. And I think you're starting to see it with Facebook even. I think that enough people are upset about Russian influence in our election through Facebook and hey, you can't, you Facebook operating this network, it's not okay for us for you to just say, I'm gonna let whatever go go on my network. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because these platforms that, that have millions of users, the, the, the Facebooks of the world, mm -hmm. um, and Facebook owns Instagram obviously, but uh, like, what is their role? What is their responsibility in all that? It's, sure. Um, it is an ethical question, for yeah. sure. And it's not as black and white as cigarettes are, right? Like, cigarettes are very clearly, you know, or, or guns, right? There's there's responsibility very clearly in of, of some sort for those manufacturers or medical devices. It's a little bit different with the social network. Sure, because the, the promise of Facebook or the promise of these these technology platforms is there it's 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 you know connecting people it's making um you know uh if it's uber it's you know making getting a ride home or mm -hmm. you know when you're when you're drunk it's you know making a smart decision and getting an uber rather than trying to drive yourself um you know the promise is there sure um well and i think the other dark side that we haven't talked about yet is there are losers in the short run with, with technology uh if you bought a $750,000 medallion to operate a taxi 20 years ago in New York, you're probably not feeling very good because the value is now a third of what it was, largely due to Uber. Mm. There is a dark side there as well. And I think, I, I saw Mark Warner speak in, in Virginia. He's one of the senators in Virginia. And he was talking a lot about Society 2.0, or he had some similar name like that. And he says, you know, the, the social contract has to change now. It's not it's not go to school for four years, go get a, pick a career and then go do it for the rest of your life and never go back to school again. Right. Um, and, and there are questions about what that society needs to look like. Is the government responsible? Who's responsible for the training? The, these are all questions that need to be sorted out. Yeah. But I think very clearly the society that, that, that we developed over the last hundred years or so, you're, you're starting to see that technology is even changing the fabric of that society and we'll, sure. we will adapt to it as, as we always do. Yeah, um, you, you touched on education, which brings up a couple things I wanted to ask you about. Um, um, first, your education. You went to um, George Mason, right? That's correct. And Duke. Do you think that was uh, essential to get John Espy to where you are now? You know, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, I think that the experiences I had at both Mason and Duke, I'll always cherish and I met a lot of really good people and I learned some really good skills. And even at Duke, I took a class on venture capital and, uh, and private equity and learned about deal structures while I was structuring a deal for a company that I was starting. And That's so that was very pretty helpful. applicable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but look, I don't think that you have to, I, I don't, I don't, I think I could have done a lot of things without the education as well, but I would still tell anybody 
if you can afford the education, get it, spend the time doing it. And especially the MBA, for me, the biggest thing about the MBA, doing the MBA program was just learning how to balance multiple things. Cause yeah. it's a lot of work. I did a weekend program where, you know, I, I was doing the same amount of work as the daytime program folks, but I was working for Red Hat at the time. And it, it, right. was, it was really good to learn how to balance so many things at once. I'm guessing uh, instead of, you know, a lecture being spread out over Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it was like, Saturday, you go in at eight o'clock and you're, you're in lecture until like yeah. one o'clock and then you have Friday another two eight, hours after. Friday from eight to, eight to six and yeah. then Saturday from eight to three. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you, and the, the coursework, I would say that it was probably a good 20 to 30 hours a week of, of work. Now, I was flying a lot and so for me, it was very convenient to just do read the cases, the case studies on, yeah. on the plane, take a few notes, and then and, and so it, it, it helped me pass the time on the airplane. And, sure, but but it was still a lot of work and a lot of balancing. So uh, building on that, how do you? What do you think that the current structure of our education? Um, how does that benefit or hinder? Uh, students, whether it's going forward into a normal career or sure. entrepreneurial, or um, well, I, I think, and I'm no expert in, in the field, so I, I think at at some point, and I don't know when. I believe it was in the '90s. We really started pushing our education system away from vocational education, and, and I think I think in retrospect that was probably a mistake. Even the traditional vocations, plumbing, welding bricklaying, um, I, I think that there's a lot of value, and you look at there's a lot of very good paying jobs that aren't going away in those fields, and and, sure. and, and we're understaffed, frankly, but, but the modern vocation, to me, is a lot, of the, a lot of the things that are related to what we do, so networking technology, working with Cisco routers, or you know, the various hardware that's in the data center, that is a vocation that doesn't necessarily require a four-year education and pays very well. Um, you may find that the that the you know that the shelf life that you get out of a Cisco certification isn't as long as the shelf life you get out of an accounting degree. Um, so you'd have to have the, you have to have the mindset of I'm going to go do a six week or six month program whenever the technology starts to shift. Um, I also think that some pro some web programming, some basic web programming or content management can be very vocational rather than going yeah. and learning the traditional calculus and differential equations and <laughs> I mean at, at this at this point I think uh, I think more high schools would be wise to offer coding as a language rather yeah. than Spanish or uh, German or yeah. Latin or whatever like who takes Latin anymore sure I, I took four years of Latin in sure. high school it was how very much Latin, <laughs> how much Latin do you speak now <laughs> not much I wish I had learned Java <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's but, but I agree, but, but I still think there's a place for the traditional education, but I think that folks should also be thinking about um, how do I marry the things that I learn mm -hmm. in a more liberal arts education, how do I marry, or even a business education, how do I marry it with the IT? Because every job that is out there has a component of IT in it right now, and mm -hmm. if you can speak both languages, you're just a lot more employable. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true, and something I wish I realized a little sooner. I just kind of there's so many things you take for granted. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it, it's interesting because technology shifts very quickly, and industries change very quickly based on the technology. Absolutely. Um, but as a college kid, you 
more or less enter a place with a bunch of other 18 year old kids and uh, four years later you, you emerge and you've been with the same group of people for four years, uh, all learning the same number of things and you're in this sort of bubble um, unless you've been super proactive about getting out sure. and getting internships or experience or whatever. But um, like in those four years, you know, industries, technology, there's been so much change has happened. Sure. Does the college that you entered as an 18 year old prepare you for the world that you enter as a 22 year old? And like very often it, it does not. I, yeah. I, went, I went to business school and I, I studied accounting and, and management information systems. I did a double major and I, I would say I was ready for the later parts of my career when the accounting and finance background became important, but yeah. I certainly wasn't necessarily ready to be employed in the field that I went into coming out of that. And the companies know it. I, I was put through a six-week off-site program where, where it was basically a, a self-paced coding boot camp. Um, and I had learned a lot on, on my own. And that's the nice thing about technology. There's no reason that you need to wait for your your high school or your college to catch up. You can yeah. just go out and download yeah. the development kits. The You can spin up resources on Amazon that I could never dream of having access to yeah. for less than 10, 20 million dollars back then. And now you can spend, pay by the second that you use it. And when you're done, you turn it off and you stop paying for it. Yeah. And so so you, you, you can do a lot of self-teaching. Um, but right now, that's that's the it's mindsets that individuals have. We've probably hired eight or nine employees who did not study anything related to computers in un, in college, but they went through coding boot camps. So they yeah. they paid five or ten thousand dollars to go through a six week program, and then we bring them on and we say, hey, you're not ready on day one. We're going to put you on some easier projects. But we've got some very very talented now very senior people who. Who, who did it that way. And then there's others who are completely self-taught yeah. and that, that we've worked with that are, that are very good. But I think we need to really start pushing the mindset to folks. And I think it, I think it has to start in fourth or fifth grade. I think if you wait longer than that, you, you've lost your opportunity. But we need to push the mindset of continual learning, continual improvement. You're, you're going to have to keep up pace with the technology if you want to remain relevant. Yeah. It's, it, it, that's, that's interesting. We can get into a whole other <laughs> discussion about the education system. Um, you know, uh, uh, as a kid, um, and I, I would, I would guess I don't have kids, but um, I would guess that kids today are the same way we we were when I was younger. Um, kids don't really enjoy the school part of school all that much. No. Like, it's uh, <laughs> and and I would I would also say for the most part, not for the most part, probably. You know, 50 percent of people don't necessarily enjoy the the work part of their jobs all that much. Either. Sure. So it's it, it seems weird that this this system that has been created, you know, people aren't enjoying school, and, and that <laughs> that school that they don't enjoy prepares them for a job that they don't enjoy, and it just seems like a sure. it seems like a broken system. Um, in, in many ways, it is. Although I, I like to tell younger people, don't believe all the doom and gloom. If the, right. the, the opportunity right. is, is there, it's in, in ways that it, it never has been before, and it gets better every year. But it's hard. It's it, if you don't take the education into your own hands, or if you aren't lucky enough to have somebody who who, who gives you meaningful education along the way, it's 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 very difficult to see. It's very difficult to grab onto that opportunity. So that leads me straight into the next question: Was uh, how did you go about finding mentors? Because you, you said earlier you were very proactive about going and finding mentors, and you, you, you met some really you know influential mm -hmm. um, 
valuable people along the way. So for me, throughout my career, whenever I would meet somebody doing something that I was interested in doing and that I, would, and I, and I thought that they were good at what they did, I was very persistent and said, I want to come work here. I worked in a car stereo shop. There was a sales guy there that I just admired the hell out of his style. And, uh, and, I, and I told him I'll work for free and nothing but a straight commission. And he taught me how to sell. And then his boss, who was the owner and founder of that company, um, took over his, this guy's role. And I started working with him. And he taught me just some amazing things that I still use to this mm. day. I remember one time. Um, I was selling to a guy that I didn't know was a very, very wealthy um, businessman and prominent businessman. I knew about his business, but I didn't know that this was right. the guy. And I sold him like a $300 radio and Greg, my, the, my boss said, John, that's Jay Meadows. You don't sell a $300 radio to Jay Meadows. <laughs> and it is, you need to know your customer and what they're actually looking for. And you need to know that going in and you need to do the homework on your customer. Another time I sold an expensive radio to somebody that we didn't have in stock. And Greg said, why did you sell something that we don't have in stock when we had a similar radio in stock? Mm. And I'm like, I didn't know we had it. I was like, until I looked at the computer and he's like, you need to walk your inventory room every day, sell what mm. you have and know what you have, <laughs> which is a, is a brilliant lesson in, in retrospect. So I always sought people out like that. Um, and again, I mentioned I was working for a company um, my first job in undergrad was with a company called Talon, and I had already accepted a job with a much bigger company. And my brother said, look, I think you need to talk to Talon. He said, they're not right for me, but I think they're exactly what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And he said, and, and you need to meet this guy, Steve. He's like, Steve is just amazing. And I met Steve. Um, they, they interviewed me because of my brother. They weren't interviewing at George Mason's campus, but my brother was at UVA and had met them on campus there. Gotcha. And Steve was rifling through a set of resumes for the 18 people he was getting ready to talk to. And, um, and he said, George Mason, since when did we start recruiting at George <laughs> Epping Mason? And the recruiter runs over and goes, that's Brian's brother. And he said, oh, okay, let me go meet him, the yeah. kid from UV, you know, and so, so uh, but I end up meeting this guy, Steve, and he's just so dynamic. And so he's telling me his vision for where he's taken. And he wasn't even the owner of the company. He was a regional vice president. Yeah. And, um, and, and I said, I'm working for this guy. I don't care what they pay me. You know, I'm, I'm going to go work for this guy. And, uh, and I spent two and a half years working with him. And when he left the company was when I found Amentra. And I had found Mike and Matt, who, who just impressed the hell out of me. And I said, I'm going to work for these guys now. So how do you, how do you approach mentorship um, now? Are you still actively seeking people that you can... Um, mm -hmm. gain some advice or value from? Or uh, Absolutely. how do you... Um, are are you a mentor to people right now? Mm -hmm. Is that a result of somebody seeking you out, or do you sort of like take people under your wing? How do you approach it? Sure. So it, it's <clears throat> tough because it, it was very easy the first year or two when we when we had you know the first year I think we ended up with twelve people, and the second year we had forty, and it was pretty easy to know everybody, know everybody's name, know their spouse, know their kid's name, um, and 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 people when you get to know them, it's very easy for them to say, hey, I want you to teach me how to do this, or I want you to take me under your wing and do this. Um, we have about 150 employees now. It's just difficult to know everybody in a really meaningful way. And so I tell folks, you need to, you're gonna have to seek me out because I can't seek you out. And we have, um, I have a calendar set up that I commit six hours a week to. It's called Shoot the Shit with John. Yeah. 
and anybody is welcome to get on there and I tell them you can talk about whatever you want. It can be about work, it can be about who I think is going to win the Super Bowl, it can be about yeah. watches, whatever you want to talk about. But So I try to do that. Um, I, on the other side, I, I constantly seek out mentors um, and I constantly try to get in contact with mentors that I've worked with yeah. in, in the past, for sure. Do people take advantage of the shoot the shit? They do, not as much as I'd like for them to. It's, it's the same people who already were seeking, <laughs> seeking me out for oh, yeah. the most part. Uh, <laughs> That's interesting. But it's, it's a relatively new concept and we're, 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 uh, we're, we're still experimenting with it and try, trying to get it right. Yeah. Um, uh, is that with the idea of just creating closer relationships throughout the company or... Mm -hmm. um, Okay. Yeah, for, and for me, we're, we're in a people business, and so it, our business starts and ends with our people. We don't have inventory that we sell. Right. We don't have assets on right. the balance sheet other than our standing desks and, and <laughs> monitors that we buy people. Um, our asset is our people, and if, if they come to work for a small company like Level because they want access, not just to me, but to the entire executive team. And so we've always had a very open door policy. Um, just yesterday we did a, a tequila tasting at, at, at 4.30 and got a group of about 20 people together to just come taste tequila with a there couple of go. the executives. And so we, we're always trying to do that because, it, again, it's, it's, it sounds cliche, but it, truly in a consulting business, you're only as good as your people. And if you don't have those relationships, um, you know, these, these people can go work anywhere they want. They're, they're very smart and they're, they're doing things that are very in demand. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, how do you, how do you kind of parlay that into like, um, like a culture that that fosters innovation and creativity? Mm -hmm. um, sure. So, um, and, and I don't, I don't. Luckily, I don't drive a lot of the culture in the company anymore. Um, there's a lot of people who have taken and run with that. I think you've seen our store.level.io. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People really get into the swag, and it's it's great when I see people on Instagram, you know, wearing, I get a wearing the I stuff. Got, uh, we'll get you one. The prices are dirt cheap on your website. I don't know why. Because <laughs> we're selling them, but not at markup. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there's um, we've got actually a, what we call a culture committee, and okay. and there's I believe eight people on it that have been around for a while, and they know the the culture that we want to foster. And for us, our, my contribution to the culture was I sat down with probably six or seven of our, of our um, top leaders within the company and we defined what our core values are. And we wrote down the core values and we put them in the company handbook. Problem was, as we grew very quickly, nobody reads a company handbook. <laughs> and so we said, well, how do we get better about this? How do we really instill these, cult these, these cultural values? And these are things like intellectual curiosity, respect for diversity, so, uh, passion for solving business problems using technology, you know, things that are very core yeah, so to how we hire people. Let's d dig right into those. Like, what are the, is it five? It, it's five. five. There might even be a sixth one in there as well. Okay. So. <laughs> do you know off the top of your head what they are? Yeah, like, yeah. Those three? Yeah, I, I do. So, so, so I mentioned those three, um, and then there's a passion for, also a passion for excellence. Okay. And I tell people the passion for excellence is on anything that you're doing. If you're going to bother doing something, you need to do it great. If you're filling out a time sheet or an expense report or a project status report, it needs to be your best effort, just like any sales material that you develop or any code that you develop. That has to get people fired up, and, and that's what we look for when we hire people, just like the respect for diversity and inclusiveness, just like the, the um, 
passion for solving business problems with technology. Uh, intellectual curiosity is a very big one uh, for us as well. And I'm drawing a blank on the fifth one, and it's probably the most important, but I'm completely drawing a blank. So what, what we did, though, to reinforce these values is we, we have a quarterly meeting where we get everybody together. Yeah. And, and we just review what's going on in the company. The good, the bad, and the ugly, I like yeah. to tell, tell people. We review the profitability of the company, the revenue, the targets of where we want to go next quarter. We review any new projects that we started, any sales activities that we're working on. We review any marketing activities or marketing campaigns, and then we like to dig into a technology or yeah. a theme that we're thinking about. And we decided to add a whole other section called um, core values award. And so we, we print out what the core values are on a slide and we, we set up a voting uh, system beforehand where people are able to nominate two winners every quarter of the core values award. Cool. And then we, the, we have a committee that reviews those and selects the, the two that are most appropriate. And, and that's been really good at kind of reinforcing, hey, these are the values that we as a company take very, right. very seriously. So. That, that's been a big part of the culture. The culture committee, and again, in consulting, it's tough because you're, it, there's a tendency to affiliate with your client more than with the company that you work for because oftentimes you're spending more time working with the client than you are with your other coworkers. You build cohesiveness within your team at level that's working for the same client, but you start to identify with the client in some cases. So we do the quarterly business meeting that I talked about, which is a big, a big hit with our folks. We do an annual holiday party where we dress, every, everybody gets dressed up and we go bring the spouses and, and go to a nice venue. And that's, that's a big source of, of um, making people feel like they're part of something more than the client work that they're doing. Uh, we do every Friday, we cater lunches. And that's a big hit. Um, we, you, you'll see 60, 70 people show up in our Charlotte office. It's standing room only in our kitchen because yeah. it's such a hit. We also pay for our, our um, employees to do CrossFit. And sure. we, we do that because not everybody takes advantage of it. CrossFit isn't for everybody, but we do it because, again, we want people to, to build the camaraderie. And there's nothing like one of our employees who's, you know, half my age coming in and kicking my ass in right. Fran right. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to, to, to build that kind of cohesiveness. So, For sure. so, so we, we try to do a lot of things like that. We do every, I think twice a year, we do a family picnic and you know, there's all sorts of events that are going on. We do, um, we, we recently did a, um, Habitat for Humanity, uh, a couple teams went out and built houses for Habitat for Humanity, and we had a special Level Gives shirt made by our design team that you, the only way you can get that shirt is if you participate in one of the charitable uh, events. Uh, we did a food, we did a food and present drive uh, two Christmases ago that was very successful, um, and, and those kind of things build kind of that community yeah. and, and, and the culture within the company. How does that... Um how does that relate to John Espy? You, you know, you talk about the five core values of Level. Mm -hmm. Have you boiled down the the five core values of John Espy? I I think we have, but I think that it, it's probably an iterative process. I think that as we got in, and, and Chris, my co-founder, and 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 Matt, our, our other co-founder, mm -hmm. the three of us really, um, as as we 
as we saw the company evolving, I think we started to realize some things matter more than yeah. other things, but a lot of them, I think, are in there that are important to me and that we, we've sought out in the people that we hire. What about for you, your life personally, not separate from level, separate mm -hmm. from whatever you've done? Like, what, what drives John? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I do think that the, I, I do have a, a passion for excellence and a passion for challenging myself. Um, I met you through uh, the CrossFit gym. Um, CrossFit really appeals to me and, and to me signifies the way I want to live my life, which is try to do something that is so incredibly hard that you can't imagine possibly doing it. <laughs> and, yeah. and eventually you, you tackle it and then you can start to do more difficult things. And, and that's, I think, largely, not just in business, but I think that's the way that I like to, like to think about things. I like to set goals that are directional and then try, try my best to achieve them and recalibrate as, as I need to. If I get close to the goal, maybe it needs to extend a little bit. If I clearly am not going to hit that goal, I need to recalibrate it so that I can actually, uh, something that I can actually achieve or get close to. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, my, my personal goals, I mean, I've got a nine and a five-year-old that I absolutely adore, although I was ready for them to go back to school after the, after <laughs> <Yeah>. the winter break. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, seeing those guys, uh, grow up and I was at the nine-year-old's basketball game today and it's just really cool seeing you yeah. know seeing seeing them go through a lot of the same things that I went through hmm. um, it was a long time ago when I went through it but I still remember some of it so. right um, which kind of brings us to the the next line of questioning is like what what advice do you give an 18 year old kid mm -hmm. uh, an 18 year old version of yourself you have a phone call with him mm -hmm. John's on the phone. What do you say? So I would say first and foremost, John, pay more attention in math and yeah. science and, and in your engineering classes. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I would not have listened. <laughs> I would have told myself to do to get more involved in sales earlier and and um, and, and I would have told myself to to uh, to really pay attention to the journey. I think too often we get caught up in the result and and how you get there is 90% of the fun, no matter what it is that you're doing, whether it's doing a workout or training for a marathon or, or uh, you know, working with your kids to, to get better in math or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, and, and especially in your career. I, I think that now I really appreciate the journey and I try to be in the moment uh, instead of just how do I get to where I'm trying to go. Um, and that, that's something that I've just learned probably in the last last few years really so that would probably be the best advice I could have given given myself knowing how little I thought about anything other than just the result back then yeah it's interesting you you, you keep touching on your sales experience mm -hmm. um, I, I used to have a job selling fitness equipment mm -hmm. and uh, when I first started I thought it was I thought it was gonna be one thing and you know super simple I was really into working out so I, I thought if I could just talk about working out that it would uh, that it would carry over to, to sales but it um, you have to have a really in-depth knowledge of the product you're selling yep um, and and when when you kind of take that experience and transition it into something else like entrepreneurship um, you know, you said your employees can go work at any company, right? Yep. Like they're talented individuals; they can get jobs anywhere. You got to sell them on why they should work for you. Yep. Um, you have to sell customers on why they should to yep. they should use your company, which involves having a really, really in depth knowledge of what you do and who you are and yep. and what your strengths are. So um, that's something I've, I've, that stuck with me more than you know what motor is in 
a life fitness treadmill. <laughs> um, it's just about having having that that granular knowledge of, of, of what it is you're doing and who you yeah. are. And, and you need you need to have the knowledge. I think more than anything, what I've learned in, in selling is that you, you need to sell the benefit, not the feature. Yeah. Like you're not, you don't go to Home Depot to buy a drill bit because you want a drill bit. You want a hole in the wall. And you don't even really want a hole in the wall. You want to hang a picture on the wall. And you don't even want to yeah. hang a picture on the wall. You're trying to preserve a memory. Yeah. That's what you're buying, and if you're selling to that, you're ahead of the game. Whereas yeah. if you're just selling, this is an eighth of an inch anodized steel. Like nobody <laughs> cares about that. Like yeah. you, you do need to know it, but it's not how you get people fired up. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Um, uh, back to the back to that original question. What do you what do you tell some other eighteen year old kid out there who wants to be the next John Espy? Sure. I, I tell them to aim higher. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> so uh, I already mentioned, you know, I, I think I'd first tell them don't don't pay so much attention to the doom and gloom yeah. that's out there. Yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would tell them there's a lot of opportunity, but they need to go out there and they need to take responsibility on themselves to do that and not rely on others, but take advantage of others when you can. And more than anything, I would tell them you really need to think about um, where you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. And rather than evaluating, am I making enough money or do I have the right title? You need to be thinking, am I finding the right mentors? Am I plugged into the right network? And mm -hmm. am I growing the skills that I need to grow to get to where I'm going? And if you aren't moving in the right direction, you need to figure out how to. And largely it's going to come down to finding the right mentors and getting into the right experience. Too often I see people who think job hopping is the way to get to where they're trying to go. And you can, especially in our industry, you can always find somebody who will pay you another 2500 a year or another 5000 a year. And that's, that's a fine path, but you, you're, the, the value that you get out of building a network, the value that you get out of learning skills and doing things, that, learning how to sell people on yeah. things, learning how to lead people, how to inspire people, that's the real value of, of your career and what you need to be. If you can focus on that, you know, from 18 until the, throughout the rest of your career, you're going to have such a leg up on everybody else that the the five grand a year or ten even ten grand a year really doesn't matter. It pales in comparison to if you can build 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 yourself into that leader that you yeah. that you you think you can become. Um, the the last question, which usually I would go in a different order, but um, what is the the best bit of advice that you've received? Sure. So um, one of my favorite business movies of all time is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alec Baldwin's character talks about ABC always be closing. And, um, and, I, and I think that that's true. And you alluded to it earlier, right? You, you, you are always selling somebody on something, not just the proposal that you're delivering to the CIO of, of a client, but you're, you're, you're selling the prospective employees, you're selling investors, you're selling decisions that you make with your coworkers, with your peers, with your superiors, you know, it, you're always you're always selling and for me the real light bulb moment came on around selling. And again, I did a lot of selling at, at earlier in, in my career while I was in high school and in college. Um, but when it clicked on selling in the enterprise and not just sales, but the other side of selling that I just talked about was I had a mentor uh, at a mentra who was the best in the world at telling a story to get people excited. And he, what he did was he told a story that he was intimately familiar with, 
doesn't matter how directly relatable it is to what you're doing. If you can tell it with passion and you can get in all of the details and then you figure out a way to relate it to convince somebody that, hey, this is why this is relevant to you, it's very effective. And I knew, um, I knew that I could do that. That was a thing that I could naturally do. I could always tell stories to people, but I never had made the connection that, hey, this can be a very, very powerful tool for, for selling and convincing people of things. And, uh, and just seeing a, a pro in action doing it was really amazing. And it's funny because I've taught probably three or four of, of our top guys who had not done sales before. I've taught them kind of that approach to selling. And we were actually, my co-founder and I, Chris, who's a fantastic seller, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, but he, it wasn't what he was doing when, when he and I first started working together. Um, and, and I, and I you know, taught him a lot of things about selling. And he said to me when he met Mike, my mentor from Omentra, he said, it, he's like, I could see that that was my mentor, even though I'd never met the guy before, because I could see hmm. how, you know, I could make the connection that this is where you learned how to do this. Yeah. So, so that, that was, I, you know, it wasn't specific advice that Mike gave me. It was much more just a, a way of selling and making that, that connection through a story rather than, uh, you know, re rather than, going through a list of features yeah no, no, I think people can especially to, in today's world where you're, you're always kind of filtering information whether it's from your phone or mm -hmm. whatever um, I think when people can can see that uh, authenticity yep. like when you when you really know and you're, you're personally invested in a story um, that's something that kind of shines through all the rest of the all the bullshit that's sure out there. sure um, it does and, and the other thing that I learned in that experience at a mentor was just the value of expectations management you're not gonna be you're not gonna deliver a hundred percent of what you say a hundred percent of the time and people can live with that if you if you set expectations properly and if you own your mistakes and if you're just very very genuine with people you can turn a bad situation into a good one um, on the flip side, you can have a good situation, but if you don't set expectations, it, it, you know, if you wake up in, in, in the middle of the night thirsty, rubbing your eyes and you, and you stumble over to the refrigerator and you grab a carton, it doesn't matter how much you like orange juice. If you were expecting it to be milk, you're going to mm. spit it out if it's oh, orange juice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's, um, that's another good analogy. <laughs> this is, yeah. Um, that's pretty much all I have. Cool. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. This is a really, really cool format. Yeah. I'm always happy to come, I, uh, come rap with you and, and drink some really good coffee. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully hopefully I have lots of lots of good coffee in the future. <laughs> I gotta get down to Australia at some point. It's just... It, it's marvelous. It's, it's really a fascinating place. From, from the culture to the, the like people and places to the um, biodiversity to like... I, I, I drove up the coastline and into the mountains and in, into the Yarra Valley while I was there the last time and it was just the most fascinating thing in the world to me because the, I, I was seeing plants I had just never seen before. Yeah. I just didn't even know these plants exist yeah. and hundreds of them as we're driving through and, right. and same thing, we, we went to a, a nature sanctuary and saw koala bears and wombats and Tasmanian devils. and <laughs> That actually reminds me of, of something I forgot to ask earlier. What do you think... Um, because you got offices in, in mm -hmm. countries around the world now, um, what do you think uh, American culture is is doing right mm -hmm. that other cultures can can kind of learn from, and what do you think that other cultures are doing that mm -hmm. Americans can can learn from and sort of incorporate to to, sure. to make our experience? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I'm probably not what you would consider a 
you know, flag company nationalist or, or patriot. I, I do love my country, but I think that there's a, we're very much a force for good in the country, uh, in the world. Um, we, we've had some very well-publicized mistakes and some bad legacies, but I do think overall that there's a lot that other cultures can, can learn from us. And um, I think first and foremost, it's our entrepreneurial spirit. Um, it, I, I visit a lot of countries with a lot of great people, and I can honestly say I've never been to one that I think can create things the way that our dynamic culture can. And a lot of it goes back to this note. It, it's just that we just think fundamentally differently as a people. Now, a lot of, a lot of other countries see that and, and are trying to replicate it yeah. um, and, and, and that innovative spirit. But if you look at the... If you look at a lot of the, everybody everywhere, including in our country, is trying to replicate what's been done in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's a lot to be said there. Now, I think that the dark side of that is starting to come out. And Hollywood is, as well is, is very much, um, you look at what Hollywood creates, everybody is trying to emulate that. But there's a dark side to both, and we're seeing it with the Me Too campaigns right now. Um, and, and that's, that's a, the dark side of our culture. I tend to be an optimist and focus on the good things, but, but certainly there's, there's, there's a dark side to things as well. Um, I, I think that when, when I visit a country like Australia or, mm -hmm. or the UK or, or Buenos Aires and Argentina, um, I think that people in a lot of other cultures on the flip side, they get life a little bit better <laughs> and they understand that it isn't just about the work. It isn't just right. about the hustle. It's not just about the grind. Yeah. And I think that a lot of other cultures have a much better, much better balance. I also think that um, a, a lot of other cultures tend to have better, um, better practices around food, coffee, wine. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from other cultures yeah. as well, less of the processed big farm, you know, big, you know, uh, big wheat, you know, th those type of things. I, I think there are a lot of other countries that are worlds ahead of us in mm. terms of the way they think about the, the food supply. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I got into uh, uh, probably actually like the first significant person I ever interviewed was back when I was a student and uh, a gentleman named Michael Pollan mm -hmm. um, was, was doing a speech and I was, I was um, chosen as a uh, student moderator for like a uh, moderated discussion. Mm -hmm. So I got to interview Michael Paul and he wrote this book called Cooked mm -hmm. and um, he looked at a bunch of like food practices around the world and um, yeah, that's, uh, he's got a TV show on Netflix right now that, that parallels the book nicely, which is, is really cool. Yeah. Um, I just watched the second episode of it recently. Um, so that, that kind of reminded me of that. Um, sure. Yeah, one, one thing I noticed <laughs> Broad, and I hate to make generalizations, and I was admittedly in, in you know, two very large cosmopolitan cities, yeah. but certainly in Australia, there, I did not see nearly the level of obesity that you see in America, and I think a lot of it is the food culture, but also the exercise and the mm -hmm. outdoor culture. Yeah. Uh, granted, again, you, you go into any big city and you're going to see uh, you know, generally more, more healthy people than, than you might in other parts of the country, mm -hmm. but, it, but it, was, it was very striking being down there. And the other thing I'm always struck by uh, whenever I go to another, another country is just how much more in tune people are with other parts of the world than we are. We tend to be very isolated yeah. and we're looking and, and you see it in languages. I speak one language. I, as we said, I spoke Latin, which is useless, <laughs> but, but I remember going to, to uh, Argentina and meeting with some Brazilians who spoke fluent English, fluent Portuguese and fluent Spanish. And, yeah. I, and I just felt so small, you know, <laughs> you sure. Yeah. 
Um, taking it from a global level down to more of a local level, uh, Charlotte's kind of emerging as a bit of a hub for uh, technology, mm-hmm. um, especially in the financial industry. Where, what do you see coming next for Charlotte? Sure. So that's a great question. With or without Amazon, because I know that's <laughs> on the docket of every city. Sure. Right sure. Uh, yeah. And, and look, I think that um, we've got a lot of really good assets here in Charlotte. Yeah. When, when you look at, at what we've got in, in terms of banking with Bank of America and Wells Fargo mm-hmm. and now Ally and BB&T having big presences here mm-hmm. and Fifth Third and, and several other banks. Um, and, and I think what you're seeing is... Um, and Re- recently, uh, two fintech companies have taken large investments from very, very sophisticated investors. Um, Avid Exchange took mm-hmm. a $200 million round of funding from Bain Capital and Brad Feld's group, who is one of the most famous uh, early stage investors in the world. Um, and then that was followed up, I believe, a year later by a $300 million investment from MasterCard. Um, they are now a tech unicorn, which is defined as anybody with a, a, a valuation over a billion dollars, mm. which is, it's fascinating because there's two unicorns uh, in, in Charlotte, uh, Red Ventures and, and Avid Exchange now. Um, and then the other one that, that's on the radar is, is Passport. Yeah. Um, Passport started as a parking solution company mm-hmm. and they've grown to generally anything that a municipality wants to bill its clients on. So think subways or yeah. bus systems. Yeah. You know, so parking is one of them. And they've done just an absolutely fantastic job of getting out there and being deployed in some of the biggest cities in, in the country. Yeah. And they recently raised a $43 million Series C yep. from from Bain Capital mm-hmm. as well. And and I think that speaks volumes to, to the opportunity for Charlotte to leverage the banking talent that we've got. We see at level that we, although we work across many industries, but our, our, where we're probably the most differentiated is in the, the financial services space. And it's because we've been able to hire a lot of talent from the banks or people who have worked with the banks. And, 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 I, and I think you're seeing that kind of across the board. So I think the emerging um, fintech hub initiative, uh, Carolina fintech hub, yeah. CFH, is is very emblematic of, of that. People see it, and, and I think Bank of America and Wells and several of the other big banks are now now backing that initiative, and, and it's because they see the opportunity uh, that is out there and that we can leverage it. We also in Charlotte have um, the biggest power company by some measures in the U.S. in Duke Energy. I didn't realize it was the biggest. <laughs> yeah, or, seven, I think yeah. seven point one million. Okay. Uh, seven point one million customers. They've got customers in Florida, Ohio, yeah. uh, Virginia. <laughs> and 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 Jim Rogers before he left Duke um, was very adamant about the same concept that the banks are trying to do in the fintech space. He wanted to build Charlotte as this hub, um, as, as the center of a hub, um, kind of stretching through the Carolinas. Yeah. And, and it was because Duke is, is one is, you know, arguably the biggest in the country. And then you've got Siemens has their energy headquarters here. Mm-hmm. Um, CB&I has a large presence. Yeah. Uh, Westinghouse had a, had, a, had a big presence for a while. And you have this amazing supply chain that's here to support Duke. And you have all of this talent and all of these people and all of this money lined up. And so they created a group called E4 Carolinas, whose charter is to help to grow the sector with, within Charlotte. And so I think, and those are just two examples. There's, there's other initiatives that are going on, but I think when you, we don't necessarily have the venture capital and early stage funding sophistication that other cities do. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
what we do have is the big, huge, massive clients that anybody innovating in those spaces wants to work with. Yeah. And we've got a guy uh, who heads up corporate development for Level who came from, a, a, I think he spent 10 years between Bank of America and Wells Fargo working with those banks to help help them identify emerging technology vendors who can help them innovate faster, but also, hey, now we get to see who these vendors are and maybe lead their IPO for them and that sort of thing. So you can you can see that with these big massive companies like a Bank of America or a Duke Energy, that that's an advantage that a city can play to to attract companies that that you know um, that, that want to that want to become service providers for those companies. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm I'm excited to see how Charlotte grows. I think it's still got so much room. Just physical like land yeah even so uptown. much <laughs> so much space to grow yeah um, it uh, does and, and there's favorable factors for the city right mm -hmm. like it's 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 relatively good weather it's relatively affordable mm -hmm. the traffic's relatively low mm -hmm. um I used some to, people might disagree with you but coming sure. from seattle i i've seen the worst traffic so. yeah coming from dc i you know it's it's it, it, yeah. but it's it, it is getting worse and that but that's that's usually a good sign that something's good about your city because right. people that's, want to be here and there's an energy in charlotte people feel it people of all generations people who come to visit us are just like i had no idea you know we take them uptown and walk them around and they're like this is really yeah cool there's just an energy here yeah. that, that you don't necessarily feel in some other cities so yeah. Yeah. So we, we my, you didn't ask, but my personal feel is we probably come up short in the HQ2 bid, but I think going through the paces of, mm -hmm. of the economic development groups, um, Charlotte uh, Regional Partnership and, and Center City Partners and yeah. the Chamber and, and coming together and putting everything together, the package that they did. Yeah, and I think Cooper's that all in on it too, right? Governor yeah, Cooper? Yep. And, and I, think that that's, I think that's worthwhile. That's part of becoming a world-class city is learning how to do that. I don't think that we have the advantages of an Atlanta or a Dallas or a DC in that HQ2 race, mm -hmm. but I think we're probably in the top 10 or 15. Um, but I think that the next thing that comes around, like HQ2, hopefully we're that much more prepared and ready ready to land that type of thing. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully we get HQ2. <laughs> Who knows? I, I, you know, the the Amazon checklist, the one thing we're missing is a like a major university. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a deal breaker for them, but it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and we, we certainly it don't. I mean, we certainly don't have the infrastructure to, to you know to to support them. Not right um, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and very few cities do. I mean, maybe in Dallas, Fort Worth does. Yeah. Um, but they've landed massive headquarters before. They're they built uh, Toyota built a headquarters mm -hmm. in in Plano, and they were able to to build that infrastructure up almost over, almost overnight. And but they've already got a great system of roads and, and bridges and yeah. I mean they still have massive traffic problems because they've just grown so quickly. But but it, it, it's interesting to see again Driver I was those cars, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. those cars. <laughs> well I heard a funny quote uh, we brought in a, a management consultant um, to do a workshop for our management team mm -hmm. and he was just full of hilarious quotes. But one of them was um, we've all been there after work where you're driving and you're not paying attention and you look up and you're like, how did I get here? And he said, they say autonomous cars are coming. We've all been in a driverless car before. <laughs> uh, yeah. Asleep at the wheel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, I, I think, I think Charlotte's in a good spot and I'm, um, I, I think it is. I think there's a lot of talent here um, because of the banks, because of the big companies and, 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 and we're starting to see some real homegrown success stories. I yeah. think when you look at, 
we are, I already talked about Passport and Avid and, and Red Ventures. Um, but then there's there's companies like Map Anything who's doing very well. Um, uh, Smart Sky um, is a company that raised a bunch of money to do true 4G LTE delivered into airplanes, yeah, um, which okay. is is, I is amazing. Aware of that, yeah, yeah. That's, I want to say they raised 120 million or 150. It, it, it's a serious, and they're yeah. tackling a very very interesting problem that we've all witnessed. Mm -hmm. You know, traveling. Um, the, you know, the, the bandwidth that you get on GoGo is, is nothing. They, they, they show demos where they're Skyping while watching Netflix, while surfing the internet. Yeah, you can't do that right now. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't do that right now. So it's, it, it, but it's interesting to see these homegrown Charlotte companies. Pazer is a company that um, does payment processing for, um, for HVAC, uh, folks in the HVAC field. And uh, it real, built some really, really innovative technology for, uh, for that industry. And, they've raised a series A and maybe a series B. So it, it's really interesting to see this starting to happen because if, if you trace back how Silicon Valley got to where it is, most of the VCs and companies that you've heard of over there can trace their, rate, their roots back to one company, um, Fairchild Semiconductor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because there's a museum, in, I believe in Palo Alto, um, somewhere in the valley, that um, actually shows the, the value of Fairchild was never higher than 2.5 billion, which is still high, but somebody actually went and mapped out every VC, every VC company that came out of there and every company that was, that was started by people who cut, you know, cut their teeth at yeah. Fairchild, and it's something like $3.5 trillion of market cap. Um, and, and it literally all traces back to one company. And so that's why it's really exciting when you see an Avid exchange, you see a yeah. Red Ventures, you see, because what, what ends up happening is you have 20, 30, 50, 100 people who see the sausage being made and learn how you build something successful and get the mentorship and make a lot of money in the process. And what do they do? They go fund other things or they go start right. other companies. Right. And, and that's what, we're, what we've really been lacking in Charlotte is we've not had a massive exit that made a whole bunch of people wealthy and created a big pool of talent, but but we're seeing it, and 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 I, every company I name there could be the one that's the first one right. to really break that mold. And there have been successful exits, but not none of the mega exits. There hasn't been an AOL or a Facebook, but I think every company I mentioned there could be the one that does it. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Well, that's a, that's all I have. Um, Awesome. Again, thanks for coming on. I we, the, remembered a question that brought up a whole other list of <laughs> things to talk about. So, um, yeah. Uh, no, I definitely enjoyed it, Freddie. I appreciate and uh, I appreciate being number four early in the process. Yeah. So. yeah. It's, um, I've been able to talk to some really cool people, and, and uh, that kind of goes back to your point about you know college education. Everybody I've talked to on the show has come from people that I've met here, and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for college. So sure. it's um, it's been a really cool collective of uh, uh, experiences that I've had, and, and it's cool. Well, I've enjoyed it. Maybe, maybe you'll have me back in a year. Or two. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Hopefully, with uh, you know more offices for Level and more coffee shops for me. So. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we'll, maybe we'll make it to Italy and bring back <laughs> some espresso beans. Something, <laughs> something like that. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, thank you.